Hello and welcome to Watch It Baptist Church Online. This is one of our teaching sessions uh, and we're beginning a new series with this session looking at discipleship. In a moment I'm going to pray and then read, or maybe the other way around, uh, but just a quick introduction to say that this series is not designed to be exhaustive in how we look at discipleship. It doesn't seek to answer every question you might think of. What it does aim to do is give us a sense of what it might mean to be a disciple by putting it in terms of the things we might need. So we're going to start that in just a moment, uh, but I'm going to read first. We're going to read from John chapter 2 and verses 1 to 12. I'll be reading from the NIV version, New International Version, uh, and the words hopefully will come up on the screen as I read. And then we'll pray and then we'll make a start. Okay. John chapter 2, and we're reading from verses 1 to 12. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells ye. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing and each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful to you for the way in which you reveal yourself through the Bible, through words uh, that you inspired people to write in order that you might be known. We thank you for all the ways in which they help us. And we ask that you give us renewed excitement about the Bible. And just now, particularly, that you, by your spirit, guide us to an understanding. Would you bless us as we look at these verses? Amen. OK, so. So I'm going to pop my glasses off and, and just reiterate that we're beginning a series here on discipleship, that is, on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And part of that is done by looking at what his disciples did. And we're going to try and build a picture of what it means to be a disciple. And I think the best place to start is with the question, what is a disciple? 
there's a, a guy called Michael Wilkins, who's a New Testament professor of language and literature at Tolbert School of Theology in California. Just reading it off my notes here. And he writes this disciple is the primary term used in the Gospels to refer to Jesus followers. He adds that believers in the early church were referred to as disciples. And I'm going to quote him again. The term was used most frequently in this specific sense, at least 230 times in the Gospels and 28 times in Acts. That's the Acts of the Apostles, the first book that follows the four Gospels. By contrast, the word Christian, looking at the NIV, is used only three times in Acts 11, Acts 26 and in 1 Peter 4. The Greek word behind the word disciple is methetes. Why is the word disciple so important? Well, I believe it's because of what it tells you about relationship. It is impossible, really, to be a disciple without knowing who you follow. You're going to be a disciple of somebody, you need to know them and know what they're like and what they're doing. In this case, disciples are following Jesus. Jesus, someone who was totally man and at the same time totally God, too. The one who demonstrates a kind of true and complete version of humanity. And you cannot be a disciple without a master. In order to be a disciple, there needs to be somebody you're a disciple of. So there needs to be that master. And as a disciple, you are um, a follower uh, and a learner and uh, a student and an apprentice. All of those words are are helpful. Perhaps apprentice is the best one because it gives you the sense not just of learning um, information, but of learning a way of doing things. Jesus speaks to his disciples about following him and serving God. And he does that in all four of the Gospels. And he talks about no student being greater than his master. So every student remains uh, less than or, or somehow retains that position of student to that master. So being a disciple is about being a learner and an apprentice. And that means being willing to serve which disciples in Jesus' day did, they served their master, and willing to learn, to remain teachable always. And it also has a humility with it. So you can't be a disciple without a sense of somebody else knowing better than you do. They get to call the shots and they get to have the answers and, and you learn from them how something works. In 1979, Bob Dylan's album Slow Train Coming, yes, I was only three when that came out, but it includes a track called Gotta Serve Somebody. And I'm going to quote from that, uh, that song in its chorus. It says, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. If we believe in Jesus, we have to ask ourselves the question, who is it? that we are serving? Who are we really following? Whose way of doing things are we a disciple of? Can we believe in Jesus and not follow him? Can we believe in Jesus and really, while we have that knowledge, be a disciple of something else? Now, before we go any further, I do want us to make sure that we're thinking about this story from John chapter 2. This is the first of the signs to which John draws our attention. Notice that it's a miracle, but John doesn't call it one. He calls it a sign. Jesus, on the third day, arrives in Cana 
in Galilee. It's about nine miles north of Nazareth and it's on a trade route. The trade route connects uh, the Roman administrative capital, which is called Sepphoris, uh, with Jerusalem and does that by going through um, Samaria and Judea to do so. Jesus is there with his disciples and responds to a social crisis, a wedding celebration where the wine has run out. That kind of celebration isn't much of a celebration without the wine. So Jesus steps in and does something astonishing and amazing. And with John's gospel, you know, particularly with those miracles, those signs, he refers, that you're getting something rich in meaning. John doesn't waste um, energy writing about something that can't be full of meaning as well. Jesus has just called the disciples. Do look back at the first chapter and a bit of John, well, the first chapter of John to get more on that. And they're just starting out with him. And, and in this moment, he reveals uh, something about himself. And so he's doing sort of several things at once with this opportunity. So he acts in a way that reveals his glory. He, he does something which shows the glory of who he is as, as fully man, but also fully God. He tells his mum that he is acting under his father's authority. In a way, he says, uh, I know you, my mum, but the authority I answer to is, uh, is something greater than that of parent. And he demonstrates something crucial to his disciples as well. He, he does this, um, by this uh, by this third day kind of imagery. So the use of the third day phrasing at the start of the chapter is really important. When the first and second days are, you can, you can again, find out by tracking back and looking at, at what comes before this story. But um, right here and now, John is referring to the third day for a particular reason. And it's important for us to remember that Gospels aren't written um, simply as historical accounts. They're also supposed to convey significance, a, 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 biolo a, biology, a biography in uh, in Jesus' day wasn't really so much limited to saying what that person did or who their parents were or what their upbringing was like. It, it wasn't so much about what the person's story was as why they were important. Uh, and so it was definitely normal to, to add a sense of meaning or significance to the actions of the individual. So John writing this gospel, this account, knows already how the story finishes. So he knows it ends uh, with Jesus' death and with his resurrection and his commissioning of those disciples as well. And so here, when he refers to the third day, it's not accidental. He's not going, oh, it just so happens that, you know, after days one and two, this happened too. He's actually trying to convey something of the significance of the occasion. So let's have a look. What does Jesus um, actually do here? And, and what is John trying to tell us? Well, I said earlier, John doesn't tend to refer to miracles as miracles. He tends to refer to them as signs because he doesn't just want to explain the episode, the what happened. He also wants his readers to understand what those incredible moments signified, what, what meaning came with them. So Jesus here brings wine and he transforms water into wine. There is a new sense of celebration and a new sense of life in that party because of what Jesus does. 
So the third day reference immediately starts sort of pushing through in a, is in a connection with this third day uh, at the other end of his life, where the third day is the resurrection day. It's a deliberate echo from John. And um, for his disciples, what, we are, what John is wanting to tell us, I believe, is that um, this sense of new life is already starting for them as they see this sign performed by Jesus. But not just new life. So it's the third day, there's an expression of new life, but there's also the arrival of wine. And wine is very significant in terms of celebration. So we have here John trying to tell us that there is new life and celebration beginning with this sign. It's not just, though, what Jesus does that rings out in significance. It's also how he goes about doing it. Those massive stone jars, gallons and gallons of water kept in them, um, were used for ritual washing. But they've been given a new purpose. It's not just it's, those, those jars aren't simply ritually significant anymore. They are now the conveyors, the, the vehicles for celebration and new life. Jesus has turned the empty, exhausted, plain, everyday thing into a new thing by giving it a new purpose, by, by bringing life and celebration through using it. It becomes, this jar, these jars become life-giving celebration things. Now you might say, well, why is that important? Well, let's just take another look at the literary context here. Not, not just so much the case of when in history is this, um, but how does John place it in his gospel account? The thing that made this uh, transformation of these jars... Um, from ordinary, exhausted but ordinary things into something special and celebratory was the life-giving power that Jesus brings. And it was achieved through the obedience of servants. See how the, the line from Mary, do everything he tells you, lines us up for this sense that obedience to Jesus is part of the process. Now you could say, did Jesus need the jars in order to turn the water into wine? I, I would say, well, of course not. Jesus isn't limited to only being able to do things if he has the right apparatus around him. But he did choose to do this sign, this miracle, through those objects. Did Jesus need the servants to bring the jars to him before the water inside could be turned into wine? No. But he did it through their willingness to obey. The change was a transformation. He didn't ask the water to believe that it was wine. He transformed it himself. He transformed it himself through his generosity. And this wasn't just a game changer for the wedding feast, and clearly it was. It was also a game changer for the disciples. They had the chance to see, as does John's audience reading this account, that to obey Jesus is to see new life and celebration. To be a disciple of Jesus is to follow his instructions and experience transformation. Being a disciple is then good news. There's an opportunity to be transformed from something ordinary and exhausted to something life-giving and part of celebration. 
chance to be made into something new, to know power and be changed by it. And this is such good news for us who want to be followers of Jesus, disciples of him. Jesus is inviting us to be transformed as we follow him, to go from where we were to being wherever he might take us. It's an amazing, liberating thing to be a disciple. Because it doesn't depend on what you believe. Remember what we said about how the water didn't have to believe it was going to become wine? It doesn't depend on what you believe. I will just say that again because it's going to need some unpacking. Being a disciple doesn't depend on what you believe. Instead, it depends on who you follow. The writer to the Hebrews talks for a whole chapter about faith and he's full of examples of it. Abraham's willingness to go where God led and do what God asked him to. And then at the start of chapter 12, we get this. I'm just going to quote it. Therefore, uh, says the writer to the Hebrews, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. These sentences urge us to put aside our burdens and our sin and get going, get going on being focused on Jesus, on following him. And so with that concept ringing in our ears, we might even go further with our understanding uh, or our definition, if you like, of discipleship. To be a disciple is to be a student, an apprentice of Jesus. And it's a path it's a, a route or a, or a journey, uh, as, as hackneyed as that kind of wording is becoming, uh, a journey or a voyage. It's something, uh, there's something in it that's about travelling. It's about how you go on more than what theory you hold to. So to be a disciple is to make that journey, to set out. Over the next few sessions, we're going to be considering different ways that we might be equipped for that journey. Each session we look at, we'll look at a different element of that. We are descendants of the followers of the way, spiritually speaking. And those followers of the way, that was the first thing that the followers of Jesus were called followers of the way. And from the first days of the disciples, they were defined by the journey they made in following Jesus. Bill Hull, who's written lots about discipleship and who I've quoted before, put it like this. Our walk of discipleship is marked by progress, not by perfection. I will say that again. Our walk of discipleship is marked by progress, not perfection. To accept the role of disciple, to be willing to be a disciple is to say yes to putting on a pair of boots, a pair of walking boots and the boots that represent a willingness to trust and obey Jesus. Just before we go on, I do want to be really clear about something. Um, I said being a disciple doesn't depend on what you believe. I'm not saying that theory is unimportant. Uh, our spiritual ancestors gave a lot of time and thought, and rightly so, to get into grips with some of what we believe and how to understand it. And that's why we have things like the Creed, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, um, are, are great examples of how we might express what we believe. Being able to recite them uh, by heart won't win you any points with God, but they are really helpful. They are important. They're worth knowing and learning, not so that you can recite them necessarily, but so that you know the basis on which disciples believe what they believe about God uh, in all his persons 
uh, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So please don't mishear me. I'm not saying that being a disciple of Jesus means you can believe whatever you like. But I am saying that being a disciple is about who you follow. This means that you can be unsure about things. You can be exploring how you understand and what you understand about Jesus and his way of living. You can think things and later change your mind. You can allow God to challenge your assumptions as well. And it's okay because you're a disciple who follows a person and that person is Jesus. You're an apprentice of Jesus. He is the master from whom you are learning. Discipleship is about progress, not perfection. And that progress isn't measured in how much knowledge you have accumulated. It is measured in how your character is growing to become more like the character of Jesus himself. It's not about reaching the right answers. It's not about reaching anything. It's about setting out, putting on those boots and walking with Jesus. What if you're somebody who believes in Jesus, but you're not following him? What if you're sure that what you believe is sound, theologically correct, or doctrinally good, what you know about Jesus is true, what if your understanding of theology and doctrine is all good and you're certain that your understanding ties in with what a good Christian, good Christian, would think and understand and believe? To say you believe in God or even in Jesus is not the same as being a disciple. Simply saying I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that does not make you a disciple. Tellingly, slightly chillingly, James, Jesus' half-brother, writes in his letter in chapter 2, verse 19. Um, you believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that, and shudder. There is a track record in the Gospels of the demons that Jesus encounters, um, calling him by his name and referencing him as the Son of God. So, so to believe and know that Jesus is the Son of God does not make you a disciple. And if it doesn't make a disciple, it doesn't make you a Christian. James seems to be saying that believing in Jesus and not living it, that's the context of what he's writing about in chapter two, makes us little better than demons. And that probably sounds pretty harsh to you. It does to me. And I think James meant for it to sound harsh. Make all the doctrinal statements you like. Doctrinal statements are not discipleship. Standing firmly on a point of principle and saying, this is what I believe, doesn't make you a disciple. It is all about following Jesus and allowing yourself to be changed, to become more like him. If your character is static, then there's something about discipleship that isn't happening in your life. I've got a note here on my notes. It says, to believe in Jesus and not follow him is to be a vampire Christian, to take as much of the blood of Jesus as we want for our own life, our own salvation, but to cast aside Jesus's own call on our lives. That's, that's a paragraph of my writing. And again, you may feel it's perhaps slightly too dramatic, but let's be honest here. If you believe in Jesus and in his death for you, then there is something about the shedding of his blood that that is something you want to accept. That's part of what we remember in communion. If you stop at belief and don't allow transformation, which is something of what that character 
developing is about the, the, <clears throat> the Christ-like character developing in who you are, then actually you are just taking the blood of Jesus for your own benefit. Jesus calls us to be disciples, apprentices, learners, followers. To not be a disciple is to say that we don't need to be learners, that we don't need to keep being teachable. And to only learn by reading or thinking is to deny Jesus' call, not just to say what we believe, but to do something. We take our understanding of what he means about that from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. It's a, it's a chunk of, of Jesus talking that I think most of us quite sensibly feel is pretty challenging. It says, to those who would say Jesus is Lord, but not live as disciples, he has a message. And that message is that he doesn't know those who simply say they believe in him. He knows those who live as disciples and, and allow the way that their life works to be a reflection of how Jesus demonstrates life should be. If our faith is mostly about having the right doctrine, right dogma, then all we are ever doing is trying to put some kind of credit on our knowledge account. And if that's the case, then the God that we serve is just some kind of accountant or headmaster whose tests we have to pass. I don't think Jesus calls his disciples in that way at all. The reality is we don't serve an accountant or a headmaster. We're not called to follow an accountant or a headmaster. We serve a father and a brother and a friend. And the call to be a disciple is the call to be what God intended us to be. It's an invitation to discover true humanity, to be like Jesus. As I so often, I think not too often, say, if you want to know what the Father is like, then you look at Jesus. It's an invitation to follow Jesus. And it's an invitation to discover true humility, to be like someone else more than like you might instinctively be yourself. We don't start that way, but it's something we're offered, something we're invited to do, just as Jesus invited his followers, his disciples, to come follow me. It's also why Paul writes in Philippians uh, 3, verses 12 to 14, about pressing on. Again, I'm reading from the NIV here. Paul writes, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. People will take different approaches to discipleship, and that's okay too, as long as it's the Jesus way they are following. There will be those whose discipleship is more educated, is heavily literate or academic. For others, it'll be quite com uh, contemplative, involved in contemplation, in, in, that, in that so important silence and stillness. Uh, of connecting with God. For some, it'll be quite activist. But whatever it might be sort of predominantly expressed through, we need to take an approach. We need to, we need to be 
on purpose about it, intentional and deliberate. We need to choose Jesus day by day to be willing to be transformed just as he transformed water into wine, to be obedient like the servants were and to see something exhausted and ordinary as so often we feel we can be used for something transformational and worth celebrating. Let's pray. Father, we bring ourselves to you, recognising that you are the ultimate master and the best person we could look to as apprentices. If there's anyone to learn from, Lord Jesus, we want it to be you. Would you inspire us to renew our determination to walk with you? Would you inspire us to put on those boots and choose to walk with you, following your way? Would you put around us those who would encourage and inspire us? And when we see those who might live a discipleship life in a way that we think is better than our own, would we not feel that we need to be competitive, but instead would we use them as a model that we might be more like Jesus? Thank you, God, for being our God. Walk with us, we pray, and give us peace. Amen. OK, we just have a quick look at three questions which I hope uh, will be helpful in looking at how we might take our learning from this passage, uh, take it forward. The first question is this. How might you um, renew your intention, your deliberateness in following Jesus? That's, I use the word renew carefully because um, many of us would say that we are following Jesus and we don't need to start because it's already happening. But it's worth renewing that intention, the, the, the choice, the, the sense of fresh commitment. How might you renew your intention? What can you do to kind of remind yourself that you're wearing those boots and you intend to walk? What might you do to, to show that? Question two is this. How can you get to know your master better? It's not possible to be an apprentice without knowing your master. Not all the relationships, effective relationships between master and apprentice were healthy or good um, or encouraging. But the relationship with Jesus will be. And those apprentices who learn best from their masters are those who um, experience a, a growth of trust and understanding. Not just watching them what they do but watching how they do it and why. So really, the question here is about the relationship you have with Jesus. How might you renew that relationship? How might you um, get to know your master better? Question three. Which other disciples inspire you and how can you learn from them? It might be that the disciples that inspire you don't know that you find them inspiring and they might love to know or be encouraged by finding out. But maybe that's not something you want to do. That's OK. If it's not comfortable for you, you don't have to. But you can still say, well, let's look around me. Who else is a disciple who um, is following Jesus, who's shown their intention to do that and to be transformed? Uh, and and who, uh, who are those people so that I can look at what they do and why they do it and how they do it and maybe use that to help me springboard forwards or to, to inspire me or, or to to maybe answer some questions I have about how it's done. It is about recognising that part of how we live out our discipleship is in community with one another. It is entirely appropriate to be inspired by each other. 
So who inspires you as a disciple and how might you learn from them? That's the questions for this week's study.